Thank you, guys. Again, if you're between the ages of four to the second grade or traveling with somebody who is, now is a great time to excuse them to Kids Club. My name is Ben Killerlane. I'm the pastor here at Calvary. I've been here for a couple of months, so if we've not met, I'd appreciate it if you'd come say hey to me at some point. If you're new, um, we're just kind of as new. So I, I don't know who's new still and who's, who's visiting with us, so I'd love to talk to, to any of you guys after the service. Um, as they pointed out, or Kent pointed out earlier, we are working through Hebrews 11 this summer. We are looking at what is faith. And if you were to consider the book of Hebrews as, as a book, the, the overwhelming theme is the superiority of Jesus. You know, when we sing, give me Jesus, that's, that's really what we're singing about. If all the things you could be offered, that Jesus is the most valuable. That Jesus is the thing that's the most filling. And, and arguably, that's a lot of what the book of Hebrews is about. Hebrews, a book written to a Jewish culture, a Jewish context, writing to a, a group of people who ha- have kind of bought into the idea that, that religion is a, a set of religious practices. That, that if I follow the rules, if I do what's right, if I make my sacrifices, if I go through the right systems, then God will be pleased with me. And, and as you study your Old Testament, you start to realize that wasn't actually true. And the fascinating thing is, is in the 21st century, we still buy the same lie. That, that we can quickly buy into the belief and the ideology that, that religious practices please God. And, and that if I have my checklist of things to do, that I can buy favor with God. That what God really wants for me is for me to have an incredible moral life. For me to adhere to a strict moral code. And for me to be able to espouse four truths whenever I'm asked. And we miss the perspective of Scripture, which doesn't put it that way. In Hebrews chapter 4, this is a picture of Jesus. Now, I want you to listen to this for a second. It's not going to be on the screen, so you've got to listen. Listen to this and tell me if this is a rule-keeping, score-keeping judge. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says, Since then... We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This is the picture of Jesus that's laid out in the book of Hebrews. He's not a rule keeper. In fact, he's someone who sympathizes with your weaknesses. The very essence of the scripture understands that, for example, you have weaknesses. See, we don't often think that about ourselves. We don't allow ourselves to have weaknesses. We beat ourselves up for having weaknesses. And oftentimes, we do the worst thing we could possibly do. We take our weaknesses and we compare them to somebody else's strengths. We go, oh man, he's so good at that. Why am I terrible? Without ever taking into consideration the fact that that may be a strength of his and a weakness of yours. The scriptures over and over and over outline the fact that you have weaknesses. And that's actually okay in the scriptures. Because you find here in this picture that you're welcomed into the throne room of God 
the throne room of grace by the king who offers you mercy and grace in your time of need. So the picture of God that's presented here is that you are welcomed in your needy, broken state into the throne room. Not so that you'll receive a tongue lashing, but so that you'll receive the mercy and the grace that you need to carry out. And you find that, you receive that in Jesus Christ. Well, we're working through uh, Hebrews 11. I've joked several times, if, if you're looking at the summer and think we're looking at a chapter that may seem tedious, uh, just consider we're doing an overview of the Old Testament. If an overview of the Old Testament seems too broad to you, just consider that we're looking at a chapter, and we'll all be satisfied. Hebrews 11 paints a picture of faith. This is what it says in verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. This word commendation will show up several times. It shows up throughout the chapter. The idea is that through it, by this, God accepts you. By this, God is pleased with you. So if you have to ask the question, what pleases God? The answer is faith. Faith is what pleases God. And and the author in the Hebrews, as he's writing this, comes to the 11th chapter, wanting to encourage you. If you read the 10th chapter, you'll find that these Christians are in a society and a culture that's very averse to their faith, not unlike the one we live in. And, And he's wanting to challenge them to faith. And in doing so, he gives them 12 pictures. I want you to see what faith looks like. I want to define it for you. I want to draw these broad-scaled pictures for you so that you'll get it. And, and it's fascinating to me that the first two pictures he draws are really unique. Because these first two pictures he draws, okay, after creation. Creation was the first picture. Then we get Abel, and then we get Enoch. He, he paints this picture of creation, says, you have to believe, take me at my word. We'll come back to that. The second one he gives you is Abel. He gives you this picture of Abel, that Abel had faith. Well, what do the scriptures tell us about Abel? Next to nothing. The picture that's given to us of Abel is next to nothing, only that he had faith. And it's significant. Abel was commended, not because he did a, completed a task list, Abel was commended and acceptable to God not because he did the right thing or because he had the right list of good works, but because he had faith. We can too quickly make the jump to think that God accepts me based on my works. And if we're not careful, if we walk through chapter 11 in the book of Hebrews, you're going to hear it's about works. If I want to please God, I better do something crazy. If I'm going to please God, I better do something radical. If I want to please God, I better move somewhere. Now, the reality is God could be calling you to do that. But what pleases God is faith. And Abel is commended for faith. Now, we work into chapter, or to verse 5 and 6. We're going to see a very similar picture. This is what 5 and 6 say. It says, by faith. Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. 
So you just get this small picture in the New Testament of Enoch. All we know is that before he was taken, God commended him. God accepted him. God saw faith in him. And then God did something radical. He took him up to heaven. Happens twice. Elijah, the other guy. God did something radical. Why? You know, what's fascinating in this book where we're going to look at these different characters, these different people who are expressing faith, you want to think that Enoch was probably the holiest guy that ever lived. That, that Billy Graham is the Enoch of his day. That we want to paint this picture of this extraordinary character guy that was blowing everyone away, that he probably led everyone in the whole society to Jesus before he was even born. Jesus, that is. And yet the picture isn't painted that way, is it? It says God commended him because of his faith. And then God took him. Well, any good Bible study would tell you that if you're going to try to define a character, we need to define him in context. So if we're going to talk about Enoch, our next step ought to be to go to Genesis. So let's move back to Genesis 5. That's where you find the story of Enoch. To give you just a little overview of Genesis, we're in the fifth chapter, so I can still overview the whole book to you. In Genesis, you find the creation stories in chapters 1 and 2. In chapter 3, you find the fall of man. In chapter 4, you find sin kind of blowing up in the world. If sin came in through Adam and Eve, it certainly continued in their lineage with Cain killing Abel, Abel having faith. Well, in chapter 5, you get the family line of Adam. It's actually an interesting read. There's a formula that runs into chapter 5. You can kind of see it. It's actually really apparent. Let me switch there. In verse 8, verse 6, when Seth had lived for 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. And what you find, if you want to follow through that genealogy, is the story. So-and-so lived this long, followed such-and-such who lived this long, and then he died. And then he died, and then he died, and then he died. These are the parts of your Bible study at home where you skip. As you're having your quiet time and meeting with the Lord, you go, ooh, and he died. Yeah, let's go to chapter 6. I'd do it too. You find this family line, Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, and then finally Enoch. So let's turn to Genesis 5, verse 21. Let's see what we find out about Enoch. Verse 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. That's what we know of Enoch. So let's break it down a little bit. Enoch lived for 65 years. A 65-year-old man. Fathers Methuselah. Now what's fascinating to me is that a 65-year-old man fathering somebody is not the most amazing part. It's that at 65, having fathered somebody, he starts walking with God. And that's the part we can't miss in 22. 
Enoch walked with God after he followed Methuselah. So, so you need to see this picture that Enoch probably grew up as a pagan. And he probably grew up as a pagan because his dad was a pagan. And his grandfather was a pagan. And his great-grandfather was a pagan. And his great-great-grandfather were all pagans. The scripture's pretty clear about that. Now, Seth, you don't know about. In fact, in 4, 426, it said, At that time, the time of Seth, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. But you see nothing attributable to any of his lineage because they all died. There was no faith statement. And so as you work through this genealogy, this idea that Enoch was different is radical. Enoch stood out from his family line. Now that actually says something important to us from a family perspective. It means that there are probably some of us in this room who did not grow up in families of faith. And that some of you are miraculous. Because in the middle of a family of no faith, faith sprung out of you. And some of you have members of your family that you have been praying and agonizing faith over. And the fascinating thing is here in the Old Testament, it's attributing that Enoch didn't walk with the God until he turned 65. So there is that chance, that, that potential that people come. They, they do turn to faith. They do start to trust God. It's really a fascinating picture. So that's what we know about Enoch. He lived 65 years. He became a dad and he had faith. Now, if you've had any children, having them is a faith exercise. It's a crazy faith exercise. Because the first time you start holding something and looking at it and going, huh. And everybody wants to tell you that they look like you. But you're looking at this thing going, I don't know. It's pretty ugly. It's one of the funniest things. I'm glad my son's not in here. Nobody tells you that. When babies are first born, they're not very pretty. In fact, the first picture I have holding Pierce, he's blue and looks like an alien. And so I think my face was a little bit like, and, and that's how his life's immortalized in his baby book. But this experience of coming, becoming a father changes people. There's no doubt about it. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. So we know he was a dad of many. Thus were all the days of Enoch, 365 years. And if you allow me to use the term antediluvian, he was the youngest of all the antediluvians in the Old Testament. This guy left earlier than anyone else. Why? Is it because he was a good rule follower? Is it because God looked at him and thought, man, this guy, he knows all the rules. He's just doing them, and why waste it? Let's just take him home. He's got it all nailed down. See, the problem for us is that we believe that lie. We believe the lie that I can nail down all the rules. That if I just get good enough, that if I can just eradicate that sin I've been struggling with, if I could just stop doing this, if I could stop pursuing that, if I could let this go, I'd be great. Enoch walked with God. It's one of the most fascinating things in the Bible is that God doesn't present himself 
as a judge explicitly. God doesn't present himself as a scorekeeper. Have you ever flipped through your scriptures and looked for the scorecard? It's not between the maps and the table of contents. There isn't one. But over and over and over in the scriptures, you find God presenting himself in relationship to man. That's why it's narrative. Because God wants you to read stories. Because God wants you to understand stories. Because he wants you to understand that he is a relational God. And that you are a part of his narrative. Enoch walked with God. That's a relational statement. They walked together. It's fascinating how this word walk gets used throughout the scriptures. When Jesus called people to himself, he said, follow me. What does that, what does that say? Come walk with me. Come walk with me. That to encounter Jesus Christ is the opportunity for him to call you to walk with him. Just come walk with me. And a fascinating thing about the disciples is these guys weren't perfect. They didn't nail it. Peter denied him three times right before he died. Wasn't nailing it. And yet Jesus is saying, walk with me. Come walk with me. Now, I've used several illustrations about being a dad. Before I had kids, this irritated me when pastors did it. I'm about to give you another one. I have three children. They're five. My middle one turns three this week. She is a piece of art. I look forward to seeing her grow. But to take a walk with Anna Kate is an experience. To take a walk with Anna Kate is to walk. Anna Kate, let's walk. And so you start walking and you want to talk about what you see. And, you know, you're trying to have this relational moment. And Anna Kate will turn around and, like, put her head on the ground. And you're like, wait, oh, no. Now, I'm walking backwards, Daddy. <laughs> and it's, it's fascinating for me to be the daddy in that situation. All I'm wanting to do is walk with my daughter. And the same picture is true for you. That a lot of times when we're in our relationship with God, God's calling us to walk with him and we're standing on our heads. We're walking backwards. But can I tell you the difference about God and me? When I stand on my head, God is pleased with me. God is accepting me fully going, man, come on, let's just keep walking. I get frustrated. God and I are very different that way. Because God has a different perspective, a different vision, a different hope, a different dream. I'm just trying to get somewhere. I'm in the, in the uh, grocery store trying to get some cereal. And it's, we don't have time to stand on our head right now. But that's not how the Lord is with us, is it? He walks with us. He walks with us. And, and when you see this picture of walking with us, don't think that there's a pacer out there somewhere. As if this person God walks with, and you've got to keep up your 943 steps per second in order for God to be pleased with you. Why? Because he's walking with you individually. That's actually the heart of the new covenant, which in Hebrews is painted as a better covenant. That God would walk with you individually. Now, I know that there's somebody here who's already bothered who's bothered and a little offended that I'm saying all God wants you to do is walk with him. What about the rules? Don't you have to do this, this, and this? 
It's a dangerous question now, isn't it? Yeah, there is certainly, you have to follow God. You certainly come to this place where you pursue God and that you walk with him out of obedience. Let me illustrate it by two confessions. First, I am faithful to my wife. Second, I am not faithful to my wife because I promised to be. Because I stood in front of a church and 600 people and said, I will forsake all others. You know what's fascinating? I've actually never thought about it much. I don't, I'm not faithful to my wife because of a rule. I'm not faithful to my wife because I told my father-in-law I would be, and he sleeps with a gun. <laughs> I'm faithful to my wife because I love her. I love her. There's not a checklist with Pam. I don't get the end of my day and go, ah, faithful again. <laughs> hey, Pam, guess what? I was faithful today. <laughs> How about a hug? There's not a checklist. I'm faithful to Pam because I love her. And it's the same gospel obedience. We're faithful to God because we love him. Anything else works into the realm of legalism and Phariseeism. If you think you can please God by your works, you're painting a bad picture of God. You're painting a misinformation of the Lord. You don't get to the end of your day and go, God, you'd be very pleased with me. I had three quiet times. I got a bonus one in because I forgot yesterday. I sang three hymns and I said no bad words. Be pleased with me. Doesn't work with my wife. Won't work with God. What pleases God? The author of Hebrews makes it pretty plain. Verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. See, he's already anticipated your objections. Can I create the moral code? Can I create the rules? Can I just do it? Won't God be really, really impressed by my behavior? Answer, no. You want to please God. God is pleased by faith. For without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he will reward those who seek him. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he, and that he rewards those who seek him. It's even in this statement, there's two things. To have faith is to believe he exists and to seek him. Even the idea of seeking him is not and meet his requirements. And meet his checklist. Must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. One of my favorite Bible verses is Jeremiah 29:13. I claimed it as a college student. As a college student, it really started captivating my heart, but it says this: You will seek me and you will find me when you seek with me for through your whole heart. And when you start asking yourself, am I seeking God? The question that comes after that is, am I seeking him with my whole heart? Am I totally devoted to him or do I have other loves? 
And I've often found when I screw up my life the most, it's because I've got other loves. C.S. Lewis liked to call them disordered loves. That's when I screw up my life, when I'm not seeking God after my whole heart, when I'm not pursuing him. If you want to please God, faith. It's interesting, it continues, it doesn't work any other way. In fact, Hebrews 10.6 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Your sacrifices won't take away sin. Your sacrifices won't remove your sin problem. Your list of rules will not remove your sin problem. It will not improve your standing. The gospel calls you to have faith. To take God at his word and live like it's true. That's how we've been defining faith through this whole series broken out of Hebrews 1 and 2, that faith is to take God at his word and believe like it's true. If that's the case, let's go to the New Testament. Can't play in the Old Testament without going to the New Testament too. If you'd open your Bibles to Ephesians 2, this is big. Ephesians 2, 4 through 10 So you can know in Jesus Christ, it's the same thing. 2-4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Let's pause for a second in four and five. What have you attributed to this picture so far according to the scriptures? Death. Nothing. It doesn't say because of your list of good works, because of what you're able to do, because of your talents and skills. But God, who is rich in mercy... It's fascinating to think that if God is extraordinarily wealthy, his wealth is not enumerated in dollars or bitcoins, but in mercy and grace. Because of the great love with which he loved us, relational term. When we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ By grace you have been saved, six, and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Again, picture, what have you done so far? Nothing. Nothing. And in Jesus Christ, he lifts you up. He makes you alive. He seats you with him in the heavenly places. And he gives you a spectacular view so that you can see in the next thousand, two thousand, ten thousand, trillion years, God's kindness towards you. God so desires to be kind to you because it's his nature, it's who he is, and it's not about what you've done. 
It's about what he's done. For by grace you have been saved through faith, verse 8. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. It is a gift of God. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Taking God at his word and believing that what he says is true. You were saved. The, the New Testament paints the same picture that the book of author of Hebrews is trying to come up with, that, that Enoch is trying to prospect to you. It, it's this whole concept conceptually. There's not a list of rules. There's not a moral code. Enoch was acceptable, was pleased. God was pleased with Enoch because he walked with him, because he had a relationship with him. Now, it's fair to assume there's some of us who don't have a relationship with him. There's some of us who might not be said that we do walk with him. So what does that mean or what does that look like? Because for us, it's actually a question that's really the most important question we could ever put before anybody. Do you walk with God? Are you in a relationship with him? And according to the scriptures, what's required of that is not a moral code. It's that you believe in Jesus Christ. That you accept that what he did at the cross was sufficient for your sin. By the way, that's a truth. Do you believe it? To believe that what he did at the cross was sufficient for your sin that you committed yesterday, 10 days ago, 5 years ago, 10 years ago, 27 years ago, the sin you'll commit Right now, the sin you'll commit in 30 minutes, the sin you've planned to commit at 3.30 today, all covered in Jesus Christ. All of it. If you accept Jesus Christ and believe that at the cross what he did was sufficient for everything, you walk with God. You're invited to walk with him, to be in a relationship with him, to engage him, all the time. As we continue to work through this, this chapter, the author of Hebrews is challenging us to a greater, to a richer, to a deeper and a bigger view of Jesus, to the Bible's perspective of Jesus. That in the midst of the challenges of this life, He wants to encourage us not to work harder or to do more, but to have faith, to take God at his word and believe that it's true. And he's going to illustrate it 10 more times with some really normal people that we're going to continue to unpack. He gives us 12 pictures, and he starts with two very, very, very intentional examples to make it clear that it's faith that's required. It's about faith. And these next group of guys, these next people we're going to look at, guys and girls, the next whole set are going to be people who with faith, who took God at his word, start walking like it's true. It's true of Enoch, it's true of Abel, but he's going to start fleshing that out a little bit more. What does it really look like for us? 
Because it's not just a Christian t-shirt we wear. It's, it's not a cross around our neck. It's not the moral code. It's not the list of rules. It's taking God his word and living like it's true. In the next 10 weeks, we're going to start unpacking just lists and little pictures of guys who did that. Not perfect people, but people who took God at his word and lived like it was true. So stay with us, and we'll continue to see pictures of faith. One of the challenges to this session, and even the last week, is that what people want from me a lot of times is application. People want a pastor who can tell them what to do. Doesn't that seem ironic after this morning's message? Have faith. I don't have a to-do list for you. It's not about you being better. I had a junior high, a friend who was a junior high pastor used to say that most sermons can be boiled down to do, try harder and do more. It's not the heart of the gospel. Have faith. Believe in Jesus. And as you walk this week, pick up the book and read it. And take God at his word. And when he says significant things about you, trust it. And when he tells you significant things to do, try it. And you'll find him in all the details. Because he's a relational God and he's wanting to walk with you. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so thankful for your word that it's the authority in our lives. And Father, when we come to your word, you didn't present yourself as a list of rules or a moral code but rather you presented yourself in a relationship. It's so easy for us to miss that point. It's so easy for us to make it about religious practice or earning your favor. May we see and understand that what Jesus Christ did at the cross was sufficient for our sin. And may you give us the strength to have faith we could take you at your word, all of it, and live like it's true. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.